0: Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Michael Amico. And today we're talking with Richard Rabinowitz, who is the author of the recent book from North Carolina Press called Curating America, Journeys Through Storyscapes of the American Past. Richard Rabinowitz. Welcome to New Books in American Studies. I'm your host, Michael Amico. And today we're talking with Richard Rabinowitz, who is the author of the recent book from North Carolina Press called Curating America Journeys Through Storyscapes of the American Past. Richard Rabinowitz is one of the leading public historians in the United States. He has helped to conceptualize, design, organize, and build over 500 history programs across the US at such sites as the Lower East Side Tenement Museum in New York, the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute and the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati. Between 2004 and 2011, Richard curated six blockbuster history exhibitions at the New York Historical Society, including Slavery in New York and Revolution, the Atlantic World Reborn. He also drew up the interpretive and curatorial plan for the Slavery and Freedom Exhibition at the new National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., Most of this work has come out of his being the founding director of American History Workshop. The journey he has taken from receiving his Ph.D. in history of American civilization at Harvard to becoming a public historian, creating the American History Workshop and working on these exhibits is the subject of his book. Richard Rabinowitz, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. I want to start with the question of why this book and why now? The book, um, as I say, traces your career as a public historian, but also it um, talks about uh, uh, and marks the changing ways people have come to engage with the past. Um, So at one level, the book is partly a memoir and an eyewitness account, but at the same time, it's a state of the field, a historiographic critique, a, a practical guide to doing history today. So especially in terms of this second part, why now?
1: Well, I think uh, in in professional terms, I had spent about 50 years in this field when this book was done, and I think at that moment I decided I would sort of step back and take a deep breath and look through these boxes and boxes of archives of projects. And I actually began to realize that the kind of ambitions that I started, I set out although I didn't always know exactly where they were going to go. The the ambitions I started with in 1967 um, were, in, in many ways, the whole world of public history had been transformed. And in fact, of course, in 1967 the word public history didn't exist. I'd started in the field by sort of stumbling into a job as a costumed interpreter at an outdoor history museum in central Massachusetts. Uh, called Old Sturbridge Village, and, and from that I'd gotten more and more uh, uh, interested with the deep passion in bringing a more complicated uh, history to a wider public. And in the process of doing that, I realized that there were issues that related to the substance, the content of the history that we were teaching in museums and in public television programs, uh, and various other kinds of curricular endeavors, um, that the history, which in the the 60s was still largely, um, I wouldn't say mindless celebration, but it was really a kind of uncritical celebration. Of course, in 1967, we were in the middle of the Vietnam War and a terribly difficult, challenging moment in the civil rights struggle and issues like South African apartheid were on the agenda. Um, And I felt, as a young historian, that we needed to be more critical in our history. We needed to be, of course, also much more inclusive in our history, that the history that most museums and historic houses were telling was the history of elites, of uh, white men for the most part. Um, There were no historic sites, essentially, that interpreted the lives of working class, uh, immigrant populations, women, women. Transient people, the enslaved. Uh, Ellis Island and Angel Island, the great immigration stations, were essentially left in ruins at that point. And so we just felt, I felt very strongly that the story of American history just needed a much broader range of characters. And of course, I came out of a working class immigrant household myself, and in some measure, this was a way of bringing the story of my own family. And the community that I had grown up in uh, to a wider audience and to a to a broader audience, and then of course it was also the question I don't you know I don't didn't know if I understood this immediately, but that the teaching that museums could use would be very different from the kind of conventional didactic uh, I always imagined you know that kind of Monty Python right. image of opening up the head of somebody and pouring in lots of facts. And instead of doing that, we really wanted to create a kind of highly interactive, hands-on kind of learning, because we recognized it's still funny. Still, it's still
0: funny. Really funny, really funny it, though, right?
1: In a sense, to to <laughs> laugh. I mean, in some ways, you know, if you give a child or a group of kids a chance to cook a meal uh, in an over an open fire and to get the ingredients, as I learned at Sturbridge, they're going to make mistakes again and again and again. And learning that mistakes are actually a great part of learning is a really valuable thing. So the teaching uh-huh. methodology, the theory of learning that we used was also revolutionized uh, and over the course of these years. So at the end of the 50 years, I thought, you know, there's uh, this is a time in which that story needs to be told. It needs to be... because. You know, many people I meet, my closest friends, they they just take it for granted. They walk into a museum and they just don't understand the kind of intricacies. When we did an exhibit at the New York Historical Society on slavery, you know, there were 250 people on the team that worked for those nine months to really pull that all together and mm-hmm. using all kinds of skills. And then, of course, 175,000 people came to that exhibition in four months and really use their own skills and their own personal histories to make sense out of that story. So Right, so it's almost so, like a
0: like a stage production or a film production, how much work goes into it you right. don't see until the credits start rolling at the end.
1: <laughs> right, right. And I think, you know, we we tried to really help people and of course one of the goals was to make the museum experience more transparent to explain to people that the choices that we made, which artifacts, which documents, what kind of media, uh, how did we interpret the history, that we wanted to also explain these things were were decisions that really were choices uh, about, about uh, the art and the science and the craft of doing history for the public. So, um, you know, that was an important part of it. When you look at a museum object, um, you have to recognize that it has, it has a whole history. Why was it preserved, and other things were lost? Uh, how did it get conserved? How was it? How did it? Uh, its condition remain uh, the way it is, and and uh, so you know, as you worked on on an on an exhibition, I think people are really fascinated by sort of the behind the scenes part of this work. So that was another part of that,
0: right? So so transparency um and and that connects with engagement and, and that knowledge is, is coming from the from the audience as, as well as the planners and the curators i, I just want to uh return a little bit to the beginning of your story you were you received your phd in history of american civilization and you were a graduate student um uh at the time that you discovered old Sturbridge village and so at the same time as you feel that or you felt that public history could be so much more and, and thus you made it over your career. What were some of the the differences you were feeling between how you were taught history, um, in the Academy and then how history was being taught to the public and what was one offering that the other wasn't?
1: Well, that's a wonderful question. I was at Harvard, uh, you know, I was essentially American. The history of the American the American civilization that we were being taught to develop a history was largely uh, the history of uh, of people who could write uh, very long, thoughtful uh, essays and treatises. They were great novelists. They were great theologians. Harvard had a specialty, and I was very interested in the history of religion. So I read a lot of work in in uh, what you call high intellectual history, complicated intellectual history. And I felt when I went to Sturbridge and when I began to, to look at the kind of mindfulness of ordinary people, how do they construct an understanding of their own experience, um, I realized that, uh, that most of us have an extraordinarily complicated thought process, a kind of consciousness that I couldn't discover through the documents that uh, that the professors at Harvard were assigning to me. I actually loved that stuff, and I was good at it. But I just felt that the the way we move through the world, the kind of sensory motor engagement that we have with the, with the world around us, with objects around us, could be extremely exciting and illuminating if we could just slow it down, if we could understand how we put together our ideas. Um, I had a magical moment when I first went to Sturbridge. I sat in a in a chair in front of a fireplace, and the lady who was the interpreter invited me to pick up a newspaper. And I picked up this old new reproduction of an old paper in a tiny little print. And I tried to move the paper so that I could catch the last rays of light from the from the windows and or from the fire or from the candle that was next to to the table. And um, and because I was sitting in a in a what we call a stick chair, a Windsor chair, I had to keep shifting the chair, which was okay because the chair was a light chair. And it occurred to me that all of these things were all connected, that the way the furniture in the room and the light in the room and the way we read, because as I was reading I was began to move my lips. You know, I was not a person who needed to read with my lips moving at that point. But I really learned that uh, the whole constellation of human uh, physical and, and, and endeavors and the material world constituted something very, very powerful and very real, which I could invite people to really look at. You know, we say, strike when the iron is hot. So when you're look, working in a blacksmith shop and you invite people in, you know, how does the color change change? On the on the anvil, tell you when you can really twist a piece of iron, um, and learning those kinds of subtleties, which of course are the skills that working people bring to their work, they learn these things, and you know, right. and, and that was what I really wanted to to build an intellectual history that started with that kind of from a bottom up, and I have since discovered that all over the country and canneries in Seattle and in the Pacific Northwest and orange groves in Florida and in uh, cotton plantations in Mississippi, these kinds of skills, these kinds of, of ways of connecting the material world and the kind of apparatus that each of us brings, the learning apparatus. This was how a museum could teach in a way that a university no matter how much you tried to show images or pictures or movies to a student, could never really engage uh, that kind of palpable history. So that's what I, that was the, the the fascination, the passion that I developed for that that methodology of teaching fueled all of these, you know, 500 projects in the course of 50 years.
0: Right, and um it- in, in the book, you go through through your many other examples from your experience working at at Sturbridge, um, but it strikes me as you're describing it now, you know. Uh- we think about those who work at Sturbridge and other such places like colonial Williamsburg as historical reenactors and that they're, you know, they're, they're playing a part and they're dressing in costumes and, and talking about it in this way, sometimes sort of diminishes actually the, the knowledge that you speak of, the the very nuanced experience that um, the enactors and the uh, people who are visiting are going through. And it, it almost makes you want to say, and you know, the reenactor is actually letting the history act upon them so you're 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 sitting there in this chair and um of course you could read with your mouth with your mouth closed and i'm sure you were a very quick reader because you had to and to do that in grad school um but all of a sudden the the material circumstances of this place um f- acted upon you so so in other words it's the it's the materiality that that's making you as you say, aware of the intricacies of experience and the knowledge that is needed and created in that experience, that the world is acting upon us instead of we acting upon the world, um, and that in that switch is a whole other methodology and sort of pedagogical practice.
1: Yeah, I think I think you know what happens over time is you realize that the the object, the museum object. Is actually um, is actually in, in a sense created by the visitor's uh, relationship to it. Um, I recently came back from some time working at the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and um, it's pretty. They have her home and studio in Abiquiu, which is uh, forty miles or so north of Santa Fe, and um, you could just walk into the space. Um, and what I guess the technique, the, the method that I discovered was to create a drama around the object, not just to sort of identify the object. So one of the things on the kitchen table in George O'Keefe's house is an old Philco radio, an AM radio from about 1950. Um, and it's pretty much, you know, people come in and they say, oh, my grandmother had one of those or something like that. But if you stop and you use your skill, the things you know as a historian, as I know, and you say, what did Georgia O'Keeffe, who had just moved out to New Mexico from New York, and when she was in New York, she was reading the New York Times and the Herald Tribune every day. And she suddenly is in the middle of New Mexico, in the northern New Mexico, and she doesn't have a daily newspaper to read. And this, news, this radio is it. That's what she's going to... And then you start thinking... This is the radio that brought her the news of the Cuban Missile Crisis or of the Los Alamos uh, nuclear test, which was very close to where she was living. Um, it's not just the radio. It's the action of her coming out, turning on the radio for that 15 minutes of news that constituted pretty much what we had in the 1950s. And most, you know, We didn't have around-the-clock cable, tel- cable television news as we did after the first Iraq war. So you start thinking about what it meant to be attached to national and international events with this device. And the device is no longer just, you know, something that like my grandmother, but my grandmother's now experience suddenly is also changed. And I begin to think about my grandmother in a very different way because I now realize, God, this crackly static ridden radio is probably the only news that she's going to get. And so, learning how to dramatize the action and see that and then you know comparing it how does that differ from the world we're on today when we have when we have you know web news and we have information constantly coming to us and we're living in a world which is much more much more filled with information. And she was really, and O'Keefe and, and my grandmother and your grandmother were all in a very different kind of world. And so the object itself becomes the, the avenue for us to stimulate our imaginations and to provoke mm-hmm. a, a way of understanding and to understand humanity, the humanity of people in the past and to see them as, as rich and complicated people.
0: So, is uh, the title of your book is, is "Curating America," um, and then and then uh, s- subtitle uh, "Journeys Through Storyscapes of the American Past." So, is "storyscape" a word that you would use to describe what you were just detailing?
1: Exactly. So that the kitchen is not just a collection of furniture and appliances, and but it is filled with stories because. O'Keefe and everybody else, you know, moves through and and, and enact re, and, uh, interacts with the material world around us. Uh, she would come into her kitchen at eleven o'clock in the morning. I'm just this is something that's been on my mind, and she had these yogurt makers. You know, she was an early adopter of 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 of, of things like that. She was interested in nutrition. She had a great garden, so she had all these fruits, and she would make herself what we would call a smoothie. This is about 1970, 75. And she would also use that as a break in her day to move from her painting in the morning to shifting gears to prepare for guests to come or to write letters or to deal with business affairs or to go shopping or whatever. So... You know the yogurt maker is an object, but it's not it's not simply it's also a part of the whole way in which she constructed her life and and I think if we looked around our house and we just understood that almost every object has these layers and layers of personal associations which each of them can be made into a kind of drama, those dramas become a way of understanding the evolution of uh of our social life um and, and our memories are constantly being triggered. So, you know, we, we if you read Proust and you, he picks up the cookie, the Madeleine, and the Madeleine mm. brings him back to an understanding of, or a sensibility about his mother in, in uh, the beginning of Proust's great novel. Um, but in a certain way, my job has been to not just to sort of find those memories, but also to say, you know, what was the baking industry in Paris like that would make, when, how did madeleines get invented and what was the distribution system and the ingredients? Because I'm interested in the way in which we relate to the world outside us and to the shared world, right? So that each of us, in a sense, has, each of us has a particular relationship uh, to the objects that we find in the world around us. And collectively, that's the way we participate Every human event occurs at least on two levels. You know, there's a kind of national level of events of politics and economics that are going on, and then there's the personal engagement. And somehow linking ourselves to between one and the other becomes it's really more and more important um, in our lives. We can't live. We can't live. I hope in the, in the middle of the Trump presidency, but we have to, so we have to really understand what our, how our particular lives are being enacted.
0: Right. So, so most of the challenge for you as a uh, public historian has been to, to sort of move out from these, these personal encounters, these experiences into some kind of, Knowledge, recognition, perspective. I don't know what word to use. And I'm sure the word we use is very, very important because people may, may hear you describe your, your approach and your exhibits and may have experienced them for themselves and been quite taken by it as we are taken by a novel or, or, or a play or a movie. And then step back and say, well, okay, but so what? Or what, what am I to take from this? Or, or is, is the very question of what am I to take from this, a distraction from the, from the, um, the knowledge that is being generated in the encounter itself. So how do you move between these two levels, as you say, and what has been successful and what has been a challenge in that process?
1: Well, I think, you know, the visitor brings so much to the encounter. And if you can slow down process and allow visitors to concentrate. So that means physically making it comfortable and giving the visitors some, some cues and clues uh, to, to developing an understanding of the historical, of the story that you're telling, of the human action that you're telling. So in the, in the French National Archives, I find a document uh, about the Haitian Revolution. And it's the report of an agent who goes out to some plantation. Now, the enslaved people have been emancipated in, in Saint-Domingue, which becomes the nation of Haiti. And he reports that these ladies, he doesn't know what their names, he doesn't call them by name, he says, Deux two African ladies have refused to work in the sugar mill at night. And not only that, but they told they, they have told him, he's so insulted, he says, because they told him that if he wanted to go and work there at night, they would help him out, bring him food, but they weren't about to go and work in the in the mill, the sugar mill at night. Now, if I can slow you down and try to get you to understand what it is like as a newly emancipated person and you've spent your whole life in a slave society being told what to do and what you've been told to do is actually pretty dangerous to work in this mill in which people's limbs get get torn off quite often and now you hear this lie. we don't know their names but these two wonderful i think wonderful african <laughs> ladies are just they won't have it anymore they're not going to put up with it so we've constructed a whole story and To me, you know, we think about liberty and freedom in the 18th century, and we think of these guys in Philadelphia signing documents and uh, declaring that all men are created equal. But slavery, what it means on the ground in human terms is the ability of two African women to say, no, we're not doing that anymore just because, you know, that's what the the overseer of the plantation, the manager of the plantation wants. So what I'm trying to do really is to create a drama that the visitor can come in and widen our understanding. Um, it's so common for us now to think of freedom as an abstract term. It's in the Constitution, it's in the Declaration of Independence, it's it's you know it's in various kinds of laws, we can test it. But when it comes right down to it, it really, you know, I want to get it to feel in your bones what it's like to be able to say no. And to say no after a whole lifetime, after, you know, you're 27, 28 years old, let's say, I I would assume. And therefore, you know, you're changing your whole world. That's what a revolution really is. This is an amazing moment. So that document, which I found quite accidentally, it's never been in a book. It's never been, no one's ever printed it out. And I I found it, I had to translate it into English for their audience. I also translated it into cre- Haitian Creole, because we wanted to make sure that visitors to the exhibition in New York would, if they were coming from that language background, would feel that they could they could also, it's written in French, but we wanted to translate it into, into their own native language. So, and then, you know, when you're walking in, Michael, and you see a document that's, and you see the translation in these two other languages, Maybe you, and we actually, of course, had to transcribe because not everybody can read French 18th century calligraphy. So that's all away. Then we need to show people how dangerous the mill was. So we have to find images. So we build a whole story around this one object, this flimsy piece of paper that somehow or another has been sitting in the French government's archives in Paris for 200-plus years. And I made it into something I hope... Which is a really a great human drama and I want you to you know I want you to just go home and think of this in think of yourself in a totally different totally different but in a in a way that really and that's you know that his this is really what history is is the encounter with these moments of situations in which human beings confront essential realities like that
0: right and it is so so intricately and intimately plotted by you and and I'm sure the hundreds of people that you've worked with over the years, um, how much is is its effect or the effect that you want it to have um, dependent upon people encountering, these objects in the ways that you imagine them or want them to obviously in a book when you know a traditional historian is writing a book presumably it's read you know from beginning to end but that might not necessarily be the case um and uh and uh you know now with 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 digital uh digitization of of say our archives we're able to to open images on the computer zoom in zoom out and i know um, technology has, has, has changed the museum or the exhibition experience tremendously, but, but I'm not just asking about, about the technological changes. I'm really wondering about how much uh, is dependent upon people coming at these, these objects in certain ways um, and how much uh, leeway there is and whether that affects the overall um, takeaway for them.
1: Well, you know, absolutely. You have to, the standard museum method for many years was, has been in art museums to have a series of independent of individual objects sort of all at eye level, paintings, let's say, along a wall, white wall with one painting and a long text label, sometimes long, sometimes not long, but uh, one after another. And basically, we know that the visitors... Uh, m- you know fatigue the eye the eye eye, and the feet get very tired in museums. Um, so what we tried to do is to construct a narrative to turn the whole exhibition experience and say, "Look, you're going to give me an hour. I'm going to take you on a journey, and the whole journey will be in this case, for example, in the Haitian revolution, I'm going to show you how the spark of discontent in the in the Atlantic world in the 1760s and 70s, generates a kind of tidal wave of revolutions which comes to North America and then it goes to France and it stimulates the anti slavery movement in Britain and finally culminates in the Haitian Revolution, which is uh, uh, most Americans have no idea how important historically the, the revolution in Haiti was to uh, to the history of of the world and history of the United States as well, and um, so I want to create a narrative and I want to do what a novel does or what a play does that is to to bring you to make you feel as though you're moving through this story so it keeps you on track so you still you know you're, you're solving the problem we, we, and so we use a lot of the the literary techniques that we try to individualize the story with these two African women or the characters in the Tenement Museum. You come and you learn about a specific family. You don't learn about the whole history of immigration to New York at one time. You learn that here's these Italian families, and this is this Eastern European Jewish family, and these are these Irish families, and this one particular family. How did they confront the problem of, of disease, of poverty, of economic depression? How did they, what are the resources that were available and sometimes unavailable to them? So we want, so we we try to cast the whole event as a story. That was a major change in the work because when I started, I think I was trying to teach people more thematic, more topical ideas like, you know, the, the urbanization of New York in the late 19th century. You know visitors don't come to a museum to get an m a in history. They come to the museum to spend a good afternoon with their friends and their families and most people shocking you know number of people actually would rather do that in learning something new, taking something away we we you know I think we always underestimate the hunger for- the curiosity the hunger for learning among our audience, so keeping people in the story. Um, helping them move it along, understanding that the chapters of the story, and chapters of of a story, sometimes you have to have comic relief and irony, and sometimes you have to have high drama and tragedy. Uh, If you go to the Tenement Museum and you introduce to the story of John Schneider, who was a tavern keeper in lower Manhattan, and lived in that building on Orchard Street, and... You know, he's carrying his life along and he's got a German tavern and people are coming in and playing umpa music and they're organizing politics. And then one day, John Schneider's wife, Carolyn, dies tuberculosis. And John Schneider is really at a loss. Well, how is he going to deal with this? He needs the wife because he's got to have somebody to make the food. He's got a 16 year old son to take care of. He's in a pickle, he's in a dilemma. And there's no social system, there's no safety net in the United States in 1890 to protect and to to underpin this man's life. And the visitors are just confronted with this. What would you do? And, you know, somebody among the visitors says, well, maybe you could find a woman in the neighborhood who could come in and cook. And in fact, that's what he tried to do. And it didn't work very well. And then, you know, he relied upon a brother to take the boy, take his son in for a while. And so we bring you into a story in and in a drama like that. And we try to keep you, you know, allow you to sort of try to puzzle through with your skills. Because obviously, one of the things I learned 50 years ago is when you take away from an experience is largely what you do, not what I tell you. So, and, and the more I can get you to do, hmm. the more I can get you engaged in solving the problem of thinking like a person in the 19th century or something, trying to confront, you know, what do you want to do in Birmingham in 1963, confronting the, the, uh, the police dogs and uh, the, 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 the hoses of Bull Connor? What are the choices you might have had? Would you want your child to go out there and be on the front line? Because that was really a these kids were really mobilized and mobilized themselves. That's an amazing American story, right? to transform the whole politics of the country, but by the courage of 15, 16, 17-year-old children. So anyway, that's sort of you know the technique. It's, uh, and I think anybody who tries to write drama and uh, tries to write fiction uh, but history has this has to have the same kind of power. And I'm convinced it does. I'm convinced that history is just endlessly. I mean, I've never, I've never felt that I, I couldn't find a dramatic story to tell.
0: Uh, there's nothing yeah. interesting here, right? <laughs> Look the other way. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, one of the, I mean, everything you, you you've been saying so far to me, and I would assume to to most listeners, just. Sounds extraordinarily uh, rich and obvious, right? We just want to say, like, duh! This is exactly how history works. It should be working, but of course, it it took a lot of trial and error for you to uh, be able to find the best ways to to put uh, your to do the research and then to put the research forward. And one of the one of the things that I love about your book is that it really gives. Tons and tons of examples of when things didn't work out, and you sort of you 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 know a project failed in in, in some ways, and um, that it was this, this long sort you of know, learning experience um, to learn how to learn. Um, so it's very very useful to read it, you know, sort of from the beginning. Um, and obviously now we're hearing kind of the the, the lessons that you've learned overall, um, but the book really goes into to how how that came to be for you. And I'm wondering um, how, what what does this mean for for history that's not done you know through exhibits or in museums um, uh, if this is a way that if what you're doing uh, involves the the public in the one of the most direct ways in, in terms of history uh, is that reflecting on how history can be done in, Back in the academy, or does it speak to sort of uh, what history is in a larger sense at all?
1: Well, you know, I don't want to pretend that I mean I see the academic enterprise, the, the research, the scholarship as integral to this. I don't want to say that that uh, you know I think the issue really is uh, what are the, the modes of of, um, of presentation? Um, and I love reading a well wrought biography, uh or well you know, that goes on for hundreds of pages and really brings me close and I know that that uh I can't do that in a museum exhibit. I can't go into that kind of detail. So there there has to be a complementarity. And I think the complementarity, what I would I use the term which I discovered over the years, um uh Well, first, you know, it's it's an interesting thing, and the word overview and and immersion. Museums can bring you into an immersive relationship to the past. Um, Certainly, that happens in reenactments, but it also happens can happen in a very beautifully designed uh, exhibition. but it also needs to, to step back and look at the overall picture. As I said, what is the meaning of the 18th century age of revolution? Why is that important to us today? What's the language? So that has to come from uh, conversations with scholars. Uh, and uh, because, you know, not every, I mean, I, I can get very excited about the radio in George O'Keefe's kitchen. But I want to go, and 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 you can see as you as you heard, you know, as I was describing that. I'm interested in how um, information is transmitted. That's a very large and sometimes abstract subject. So I want to connect those things. So in a certain sense, I want to see a conversation proceed between the kind of scholarship that goes on um, in universities and that people write dissertations and they publish uh, monographs. And to take that kind of relationship um, and and then find ways to dramatize it, to bring it close to home. And each medium, um, you know, we've just gone through this Ken Burns long series on, uh, on Vietnam um, and the power of his incorporating or their incorporating um, so much film footage, which I didn't know existed, I mean, so much be- combat footage. And, and these interviews that they did with North and South Vietnamese uh, p- participants in the history of the Vietnam War. And to do that, using the medium of video and television uh, is very, very I thought was quite successful. I have quibbles with with almost every single part of it. But then there's also an exhibition right now at the New York Historical Society on the Vietnam War, and that brings you face to face with particular objects and particular people's stories in a way that allows you to absorb them um, in a much more direct way. And it also gives you a chance to see a map of, you know, we talk about the domino theory, and uh, and to see this on a map and to see how it was being used in the Defense Department in the 1950s to create the strategy. So there's 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 a way in which each of the each of the media, whether it's a scholarly monograph, a historical novel, a school curriculum, a museum exhibition, a video, has a certain kind of power, and they all link to one another, and they all help us understand these kinds of things. Obviously, people who work in public history, as I do, um, often feel um, as if we're being treated by university scholars as as second class. Although this is much diminished because, you know, the jobs in the university are getting pretty scarce. And my doorbell rings you know, every day with people saying, you know, I, what I do like I do work now? Work I got a PhD you. <laughs> from, you know, from Yale. What do I do now? Uh, and uh, so <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm interested in encouraging people. And of course there are new media, there are apps, um, there are, uh, uh, Lots of great stuff going on on the web. People are making video games. Um, and there are, I have to say, there are also new issues, new problems that are coming up. We've become so successful, for example, at first-person narrative, at eyewitness accounts of events. Um, you go to the 9-11 Museum and you see it's basically a museum in which the, the people who went through 9-11 in New York or Washington or in Pennsylvania um, are asked that their report of the event is really what's, what's happening. Um, I fear as a historian that some of the larger questions are not getting asked and answered in museums, like, you know, what is the war on terror and will it ever end? And why do we, why, you know, things like that, that can't be answered simply by eyewitness. Narratives. I hope that makes sense. So that's a problem. the The advent of the smartphone has generated an anxiety, certainly in the museum world, because visitors, especially young visitors, come in and you know they're they have FOMO, fear of missing out. So they're they're going through the exhibition and they're they're in touch with their <laughs> friends. And can they pay attention? Do they want to pay attention to the exhibition, um, or are they just you know, it's. I mean, we have with distraction is uh, is much easier now than it was um, when in the old days when you you know you started to walk through an exhibition and you're, you know, you couldn't turn around because your inertia would just drive you forward. So there are new issues, new complicated issues, and among the most important, I think, is the is is something that's emerged, I think, in 2017, which is that a lot of us have grown up. Believing, hoping, wishing that history was, that the, you know, the arc of history was bending toward justice. And then we have gone through a political year in which it's not too clear that the arc of history is moving in, in the direction that we expected, to say the least. And so this is what, you know, a philosopher would call teleology. And that is, what is the end? Where is this all leading? And we used to have a very simple, simplistic, uh, optimistic perspective on this. Now I think we need to understand that history is often tragic and often goes backwards as well as forwards. And we need to build up our mental, moral, emotional reserves to deal with this. And this is posing a tremendous problem for the people who make public history now, who physically, you know, I've I've been with people who are, especially, young interpreters uh, who come from or people of color, who really feel that you know they have to interpret subjects which are lynching, um, let's say, or uh, police brutality of one kind or another, and it's very difficult for them. They feel a palpable physical vulnerability. So. I don't want to say, you know, I've got to the point where many of the things I tried to do 50 years ago are have really improved a lot. But we're really, it's an art form. I feel like this is an art form that's only very young. And and we, we need to keep pushing and learning and sharing that kind of thing. And that's really one of the bo- things about the book. The book is not an effort to it's not an instruction manual. It's one person's awareness of how hard and how this is a wonderful job. You know, I often say I, I it's not I never had a job. I just had a a, a collection of many different projects. And as you as you've pointed out, a lot of them failed um for all kinds of reasons. But and we're going through a hard time as far as funding is concerned and for the arts and, and right now. But anyway, what I want to say is that we're still Developing and sharing this kind of uh, this kind of knowledge,
0: right? I mean, the book really is a, a rallying cry, in, in some ways, um, you know, it's a, a summary in order to then t- to take another step forward or know where we might want to step next. And and hearing you talk about um, some of the more recent challenges of of, of doing quote unquote public history, um, and the Specifically, the kind of puncturing of some of the more uh, progressive understandings of, of of it gets better uh, type narratives uh, that that uh, an exhibit or or a hands on encounter with something is almost. The very way to kind of – to cut through that, um, in other words, let's – okay, so so if these larger narratives are not holding up or the ones that we imagine would, um, is not now actually the time to return to the object, to return to the materiality of, okay, just hold on before anyone you know s- leaps forward with their imagination about what can or should happen. But what is going on around us right now? And um, even so far as to incorporate the fact that you're not looking at the exhibit, you're looking at your phone. And is there a way to actually start bringing that into the storytelling? Of course, I, I don't know the answer to that, but it just seems to me that that what you do, and as, as you can read in the book, sort of it's evolving, it's changes over time, are perfectly suited to begin, as you say, answering to these To these challenges
1: yeah I think that's a very good point. I think we um, you know we, we always want a kind of open endedness and a kind of you, you always have to listen carefully to the visitors um, if, a, if a young black child comes into or a teenager comes into a museum, a civil rights history museum, for example, of which there are now many all around the country. Um, and that museum tells the story as if it all ended in 1968 with its sort of triumphant, you know, or 1964, 65 with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Well, of course, that's that's only the middle of the story, and, and that child needs to know that that, that process, that, that issue is still alive and still... Uh, and so the question then is, you know, how do how do these institutions continue to keep themselves fresh and to keep inquiring. And I I think this is, you know, I always feel as though um, one of the things that's been happening in my field has been professionalization. And professionalization often means people who say, well, we're going to get this right. We're going to really nail this sucker. We're going to really do this. We're going to get our education program to be just right it's going to connect exactly the way we want with the schools but when you're dealing with the humanities nothing really is settled nothing is everything can has to continue to be reopened and re, rethought and i think you know i i want to encourage in the book um, a sense that that this work Is always it's an opportunity to participate in the making of new culture, new cultural objects, new cultural understandings, Um, and it's it's not simply a matter of of learning the technol learning the techniques. Um, That's what I think is the danger of professionalization is to believe that this is these questions are really just technical questions. If we could just get the story on the screen. Perfectly, or in an exhibit case, perfectly. So it's really more a question of how we can understand that this work, this kind of cultural work, um, is is a part of being, of creating a new way of understanding. And you have to keep pushing yourself, testing yourself, finding the things that that you feel are are inadequate. Sometimes I would sit in a meeting, and I always knew that I had two things to do. I had to satisfy the board of trustees or the client or the director of the museum that I was working for. But I also had to keep my own questions alive. I had to keep, I would come home and I would write notes to myself about what I was learning. Um, you know, I couldn't, you can't, no, no single job can, uh, can bring, can take, take all of your skills and talents and use them effectively. So you have to really find a way to uh, keep your own private learning continuing and, um, as you grow and grow and grow. So I've never, f- sort of, I've never felt as though I was really, you know, I knew how to do this. I knew exactly what, what to do. In every project, and I, I try to tell young, young people who are doing this, you go through a time when you have this tremendous dark night of the soul and you say, why did they hire me? Of all people in the world that they asked to do this museum about the Underground Railroad in, you know, in the United States, why did they hire me, man? I mean, there must be 20,000 people who could do this better than I can. And you sit and you worry and you worry and you worry, and you finally come to some point where a, a, some kind of approach, some there's some kind of light that says, well, I think if we try this, we'll find a, a way out of this dilemma and that's always been my you know i but if i don't feel that anxiety then if, then i know that i am you know it's time to hang up my cleats and uh and to stop right. doing some, doing this work
0: right i mean your, uh, your sort of understanding of public public history as it's developed over time um makes me, me me think of 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 using the word public before history to describe the 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 finding of the new ways To do and tell history, the finding of the new ways to communicate history as opposed to public history being the making public of knowledge that's been generated in the academy. so this speaks speaks to your kind of critique of professionalization being more about um the professionals who translate the knowledge that's been generated in the academy to the public in the best way possible but actually public history is a is an is the under, is the understanding of history that is the doing of history and the redoing of history um and the where
1: and the construction the construction of a public right. i mean one of the things about a museum you know, about an exhibit like Slavery in New York, is that black people and white people were in the same space looking at the same objects and looking at one another. And in the process, a certain kind of public trust, I hope, gets developed because we can segregate our stories, we can isolate our individual experiences, but to do this in the same landscape and to see one another as partners in the sharing of making a common history is really a a critical part of this story. So I know it's a very hard time in a polarized country like this to believe that it's plausible. But I think if I put the evidence in front of two people who come from different political perspectives and I just get them to try to be concretely engaged in looking at the situation of the humanity in the past, I think I can really, I'm not saying I can solve the political problems in the country, but I can get them to feel as though they're both legatees of that history right I I you know I, I don't believe that history is genetic I don't believe that that I have some special insight into Thomas Jefferson because I'm a person of European descent or that I don't understand Frederick Douglass because he's a person of African uh, origin or African descent. I feel as though every I want my grandchildren to feel as though they are the legatees of all of those strands and so, I think creating a public is another part of what public history is about, and it's a, uh, and that's that's you know the, the essential sense of that, of that term. And as I say, I'm really delighted that the term has been invented for that reason. But it isn't. You're right. It's not just dissemination. It is really a collaborative construction of a new reality that comes because we're and I think we're unleashing the learning skills and talents and. Of, of, our, of the people who come together. And if we can get them to share that, that knowledge, that's really terrific. Sometimes when we go and take people on walking tours, um, I always give people the documents. You know, if we're going to walk by an old school, I say, here's a report card I found from this school. Would you read this aloud to the rest of the group? And as people share in the reading aloud, just simply reading that stuff aloud, it's amazing how the group begins to feel as though it's talking to one another and the history is actually held in common, which is really, I think, one of the the ideals of, uh, of this whole enterprise.
0: The collaborative uh, construction of new knowledges um, sounds to me like what American – studies, and even, you know, history of American civilization as opposed to history, just straight history. Um, uh, these interdisciplinary approaches as they've developed in the academy, um, also, I think, started out with this how do we bring in more different kinds of pieces of evidence literature, uh, as well as the quote unquote historical document um, to 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 collaboratively construct new knowledges and so that so that what you're doing is is, again simply an expansion of this sort of interdisciplinary uh, mode of 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 uh, re- doing history, which is simply to say, it's just about what it means to actually live in the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, and to slow the process and take take ourselves with some ease. I mean, we're processing so much information all the time, and sometimes I think you know, it's we have to remind ourselves that that the information is just the tip that we're getting is just the tip of a deep. Uh, form of human life. I keep reminding myself that in every sentence that I read from a historical document, um, there are there's an there's an, an agent, an actor who's at work in that. There's a uh, it, it takes place in a scene, every in a, in a moment in time, and it takes place in a particular place in the world. And it uses certain kinds of skills and tools and 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 objects to make itself. Um, and you know, it, it was done with a purpose. And if I can if I can flesh out all of that um, to really understand that that every single sentence that is is actually a representation of a full human endeavor. Um, We can't go through all of life like that. It would just be so slow. But there is a way in which there is tremendous tremendous power. You know, I find this document of Napoleon writing a letter to Toussaint Louverture. It took me three months in Paris to get the, the archives of the defense ministry to find this document. If it's in an academic monograph... They just, you know, some scholar has typed out, it's been done, and they've typed out the sentence in, in in French, and then they've translated it, and they put it in quotation marks, and it goes on page 273 of a monograph. Now, I show you this piece of paper, this blue paper, that has Napoleon's uh, handwriting, and he's telling his brother-in-law, for, well, he's telling, he's telling Toussaint Louverture, he starts out by saying, you... Are Have now the greatest benefit, the greatest honor that could happen to any human being on the world. You are a citizen of the Republic of France, right? <laughs> That's what he says. <laughs> and he says, and, and I'm happy to tell you that to help you in this endeavor... In managing the island of Saint-Domingue, which will become Haiti, I am sending you my brother-in-law, General Leclerc, with an army of French troops to take over the island. And I hope that you are happy with this arrangement, right? And then he says, and just in case, you know, you worry about your own children, I have taken your two sons into custody and I will be sure that they are, they are careful. So, in other words, this is a letter that is so rotten and nasty on the bottom. There's a big B for Bonaparte that he signs this piece of blue paper. And then he writes, the next thing in the book, There's an, in, in the collection of letters, there's another letter to his brother-in-law that says, I want you to go to, to Saint-Domingue and insinuate yourself into the heart to maîtrise son homme, to master his soul of this Toussaint Louverture, and make sure that we twist him to our purposes. So this is a real son of a bitch. This is a really nasty guy. But there's nothing like seeing this and imagining mm-hmm. sitting in the, in the in the uh, the palace, in the Tuileries Palace, and writing this on this piece of paper, in you know with by candlelight, and then that scrawl at the right. bottom, and that tremendous sense of presence. So if you can take a document and instead of draining the life out of it, if you can insert all of that humanity into it, you know, that, you really see the, the, the passion and the drama of, of human history. And it's, that's, that to me is one of the great things. So my job, of course, is to take this, this scrap of paper and to somehow just, you know, pump it up filled with the accurate realities. You know, what is it like? How is it? It's not just a document; it is actually a human engagement in the world, and it has tremendous consequence, and it has consequence for the way we live today.
0: Well, we have to end there, and uh, on one of, of many moments that um, that to me communicates the, the the power and purpose of your work, and I think of, of history generally. So, again, we were speaking with Richard Rabinowitz, who is the author of the recent book, Curating America Journeys Through Storyscapes of the American Past. Uh, Richard, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Michael.